Hi guys, this is John Norris. And uh, wait, what am I saying after that? And you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Okay. Hi guys, this is John Norris, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. And on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have John Norris. He's the author of Hidden War: How Special Operations Game Wardens Are Reclaiming America's Wildlands from Drug Cartels, and War of the Worlds, Combating the Marijuana Cartels on America Public Lands. John, you gave me a mouthful. How are you? <laughs> I'm good today, Tony. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. So um, I, w- I want to just, from the, from the front, uh, I kind of want to give the listeners an uh, idea of who you are, and I want, I want you, I hope you're, I hope you're uh, okay with your own, uh, uh, what do you call it, um, because sometimes I'm not okay with my own identity, and I'm trying to still figure out who I am. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm uh, like you said. Um, my name's John Norris. I'm a recently retired lieutenant with California Department of Fish and Wildlife, and I spent 28 amazing years um, being a game warden. Which not all listeners will probably know exactly what a game warden does, but we're basically we're wildlife law enforcement officers trained to do everything all law enforcement does throughout the state or the country, just like police officers, sheriffs, deputies, federal agents, but our focus is protecting our wildlife resources, specifically our wildlands, our waterways, and our wildlife. So we enforce hunting and fishing laws where it's legal to do so, make sure people don't take too many animals during hunting season, they don't poach animals after dark, uh, destroy the environment in the process of destroying streams for development or, or diverting waterways, things like that. Um, and then the first two books that you mentioned on your intro aren't really a typical game warden story because game wardens are not known for doing anything involved in drug enforcement or dealing with the drug cartels out of Mexico or organized crime. And that's what the latter half of my 50, uh, the last 15 years of my career became kind of a focus on that. So a um, little bit of a twist. Yeah. I, I, an author friend of mine, Katie Arnaldi, showed a book called Point Doom, and it was and it was all about those illegal grows and how they really screw up the environment. Um, and even reading in your uh, and reading in your book about how they even put like they put uh, what do you call it for the wildlife? They'll put poison out so they can kill them just so they don't get to the uh, grows. Yeah, that's that's what the crazy part about this whole journey has been for me and I would have never predicted doing this type of work starting off as a traditional game warden back in date myself right now in 1992 I date myself all the time when I'm not in a relationship so go ahead (laughs) it just works (laughs) but what's interesting is um, this issue especially because it involves you know toxically tainted cannabis it it involves pretend like nothing's happening next to us (laughs) Yeah, basically, this uh, this issue involves toxically tainted cannabis being grown by the drug cartels out of Mexico. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're trying to take pictures. No, no, we're just, we're also on a photo shoot here, so it's, it's, it's cool. All right. Pretend we look pretty, make me look skinnier, and then we'll get back to your thought. <laughs> So dealing with um, dealing with these drug cartel groups out of Mexico, it just happens to be toxically tainted cannabis that they're producing illegally, uh, what we call trespass grows on private and public land. And it's this isn't an anti-cannabis mission that we've been on. We're endorsed by the legitimate cannabis industry. We're regulating here in California and many other states. Um, the problem is this is completely illegal cannabis that even with legitimate regulation now in California and several other states will never be legal. And the worst part about this, Tony, is these drug cartels are up here out of Mexico. And they're utilizing our public and private pristine lands where our most sensitive waterways are. And not only are they growing black market weed, but they're putting EPA banned toxic poisons on that marijuana um, to keep animals off, to keep people away. Um, But this stuff is so deadly, it was banned by the EPA 20 years ago. Some of the active ingredients, it's anticoagulant nerve agents that were developed by the Nazi regime back in World War II. And this stuff is incredibly deadly, and it's on the plants, and the cartels aren't really organic or care a whole lot about health and human safety. So this stuff dries onto the bud flower and everything else that's going into the black market through the whole country. And it's invisible to consumers. So if someone's buying very potent, low-cost black market cannabis anywhere in the country, not just on the West Coast, they could very well be ingesting these toxic poisons because 80% of all of the black market cannabis for the entire country is grown here in California, either by the cartels with this 
we call it pink death, the, these toxic poisons wow. that are on it, yeah. or by illegal growers that are still not regulating like they should and sending it over on the black market. So that's what people don't realize. And I've gotten, you know, like we talked about before the show, um, I've gotten, well, you know, this is, this is anti-marijuana and you're just hunting down marijuana growers and, you know, um, these, these Mexican cartel members, it's kind of a racial targeting and I mean, some crazy things, which is completely not the case. This doesn't have anything to do with ethnicity. It doesn't have anything to do with immigration. It doesn't even have anything really to do with cannabis. It's all about environmental purity in America and public safety. And these cartels are threatening both our public safety and decimating our wildlife resources and, in some cases, poisoning our drinking water. And nobody, regardless of where you sit on the cannabis spectrum, user, non-user, for or against, wants to see that. So we're really trying to get out um, a unifying public safety, environmental safety message to the entire country and understand that game wardens are on the front lines as wildlife stewards now having to deal with the drug cartels, which are extremely violent, and they've changed the game for us. Yeah. Now, Pink Death was my stripper name, so <laughs> I love I love the term Pink Death. I was just it should be like a punk band. It's the, the and I think and this is where the misunderstandings of you know people may just if they just get a glimpse of you, they don't realize that animals are being killed, the environment's suffering, and and you're coming at this from someone who's trying to protect uh, wildlife and an environment, and then all of a sudden we have tell me I'm completely wrong if I'm wrong but and then all of a sudden we have these cartels with tons of weapon tons of weapons that are essentially it's war there's there's a war happening in just a few miles away from us sometimes the, the your whole sni- the whole sniper story where on the on the uh, on the grow in Santa Clara County which I grew up in San Mateo County I'm like wait this was happening right in my backyard when I was growing up and, you know, I, didn't, I never really smoked pot at the time. And then all these people, you know, that want to smoke pot, you want to smoke the good pots. And be ing- yeah, if you're a cannabis user, you definitely don't want to be ingesting this stuff, man. And, and, and you know, the cannabis users I know don't want to willingly be complicit in fueling a black market cartel poison product being circulated throughout the country. So... The fact that you and I both started in the Silicon Valley and have roots here in California and, you know, the origin of it for me was here. And when I was, you know, in the early period, when we talk about War in the Woods, the first book period that was published in 2010, um, that covers kind of 2004 up to 2009 when we as game wardens were just getting exposed to these cartel grows for the first time. We weren't aware. Now, you're a game warden and all of a sudden you're the, the stakes go way higher. What I mean, what what is that like when... You're like, oh, wait a second. We now need more force to get because we have to match force with force kind of thing. Is that is that a good way to put it? That is a good way to put it. And we also, you know, we, di- we didn't have the training we needed. We didn't have the manpower. We didn't have the equipment. Um, and we didn't have the administrative support and the logistics support. And what really kind of made that all evident was in 2005, August 5th, 2005, is a day I'll never forget because we were doing um, one of these illegal cartel grow raids just above the city of Los Gatos. I mean, the Silicon Valley capital of the world. So as we're climbing... And, and, and for people who don't know, Los Gatos is a beautiful, sleepy city south of San Francisco. Yeah. It's, it's an affluent little mountain town in the high foothills, like you said, in the northwest foothills of Silicon Valley. And I mean, when we're climbing the mountain in the early morning in the dark on like a 90 degree day in August, we're looking down at Facebook and Google and yeah. eBay, you know, and Cisco systems. I mean, we're literally, you can see that where I grew up and went to school and everything. And, um, and then we get ambushed by armed cartel growers during harvest time. And um, the one ambusher of the multiple guys that were up there guarding this grow got one shot off from an AK-47 and that round went through both my legs, of my partner's legs rather, but they shot, basically shot him out, his legs right out from under him. So we had never been attacked by growers, no law enforcement agency had ever, no officers had ever been hit by a cartel grower anywhere in the country and it happened to be a game warden. So... Uh, and then just to just to back up, so your uh, your your uh, friend is shot through both legs. Wait, now what? Now what was the situation? I mean, the, the, because this is this is 2005, sleepy Silicon Valley. We got gun wars happening right up above, you know, this sleepy town. What what was the situation with your friend after that? How how was he taken care of? Was I mean, is he okay now? He, he, by the good graces, he is okay now. He yeah. he did recover. Um, 
We had, I mean, that's got to be so scary. <laughs> it was crazy because we, you know, we didn't have, like, the air support stuff wasn't quite worked out. Administratively, the sheriff's office and Fish and Wildlife, we didn't have, you know, the bandwidth to deal with an attack like that in such a remote area that was, even though it was an eyeshot of, of the tech capital, we're still up in the high mountains. It's steep. It's brushy. So... We had to wait three hours for an air rescue to get him hoisted out of there. And during that time, I spent that that entire three-hour period just working first aid, keeping pressure dressings on him, and trying to keep him and the team together with my sheriff's partners and keep him from going into shock and dying on us. And he came very close to that. Had he been out there another 20, 30, 40 minutes, we probably probably would have lost him. But we got him out just in time. Yeah, and so when when you're in a situation like that, are you, I mean... Are you guys like tight friends now or do you look at each other and just go, ugh? It's one of those things that he has become, an, he made a full recovery, has yes. become an amazing officer coming back from something like that. That would have been a career ender for most people. Um, he's now a lieutenant, um, has a family, doing great things in California. Um, but it's one of those things that for years we don't really go and talk about that incident very much because it was just a hard day. It was a day that we realized there were a lot of deficiencies. There were deficiencies in how many people we had up there, um, what type of equipment we had to handle the threat, um, what type of support we didn't have. I mean, now the way we roll in the new book, Hidden War, goes into building the first special operations task force, basically a, a tactical unit of game wardens to fight just this problem. And when we were able to do that in 2013 in California, um, and I was able to handpick the right men for the job and get the right canines, the game changed entirely. I mean, we have air support all over the state. If anything, heaven forbid, something like that happen again, or one of us gets shot and it hasn't happened, um, and hopefully it never does, we're going to have support immediately within minutes to get an injured officer out of there. And we're also better equipped now. We've had a lot of close calls. We've had five more gunfights since that first one in 2005 that we could not avoid because these guys didn't want to give up. They didn't want to surrender to canines or whatever the case may be. And we've had to protect ourselves and protect our partners um, from getting hurt or killed. But we've been okay. None of us have been hurt, fortunately. And that largely came from everything we learned that day in 2005. Even though the team wasn't officially um, put together as a pilot program in 2013, I credit that horrible event on August 5th, 2005 as being the catalyst of a progressive change for us as game wardens in California to realize if we're going to stay in this game and protect our environmental resources and stop these cartel growers who... Up to that point, I had never seen a more egregious environmental criminal. I've, I had worked so many different poaching cases, Tony. You know, big lakes being polluted for development and endangered species being killed and people spotlighting a lot of deer at night illegally and killing them for sales or profit or for drugs even, for trade. Um, I'd never seen so much destruction and death to our wildlife in anywhere before going into these cartel growth sites and seeing what the waterways were turned into. Dammed up, you know animals you know dead for miles because a couple tablespoons of that carbofuran that banned poison in even a little creek can kill two three four five miles a creek and everything living in it so we'd never seen that so we had to stay in the game it wasn't about cannabis it wasn't about being drug cops it was about being it was about being what what the legitimate cannabis cannabis industry and the growers doing it right in northern california call our team they're earth warriors you know that was a name that never saw coming but it kind of stuck in a good way, and that's the legitimate group of cannabis you know, growers that are saying, hey, we love our wildlife, we love our waterways. Yeah. We didn't even know these cartel guys were doing this until you exposed it, so we got both sides kind of supporting the fight. But it took a long time to get there, and sadly, a great officer got hurt as a result of us learning that lesson. And what's interesting is I just, it blows me away how it's right in our back, it's, it's in our back, it's in our backyards, and we don't know this and this is why i find this so intriguing because we don't even know what's going on around i mean there needs to be people there needs to be game wardens that are ready to go with essentially cartels i mean i, I think we're so inundated with uh, the entertainment industries cartels narcos mexico and and there's a little bit of romanticism about that uh, those characters, if we're looking at it, and you know, even even like nonfiction, but we but there's a romanticism of of it where we um, where when it's in our backyard and it's really happening, it's a completely different situation. Like a bank robbery, we love watching bank robbery movies. Do we want our heads to the ground and a gun to our head? No, but we love watching people with the, in that situation because for some odd reason, 
We had, well, no, not for some odd reason. I identify with the robbers because I'm like, yeah, screw the system. Yeah. So there's, we we have to, I guess, extrapolate. I, that's a big word for me. Uh, the narrative of, um, of 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 like, you know, what's fiction and fun to watch for various like mythological. Uh, that's another big word for me. Uh, <laughs> for what we get excited about. And then at the same time, go back and go, wait a second, here's real life here. This is what cartel is. And, and, and they're, and they're ruining the environment. I don't like environment ruin. I don't want dead animals. All right. I'm going to get off my soapbox and give you the mic. (laughs) Well, you hit it on the head, Tony. Um, this is a message. This is an issue in America, not just California, although it is the bulk of it for tainted cannabis and this cartel threat started in California so close to the border and we're in California we're one of only six true Mediterranean climates so we we have we're the great weed state just like wine grapes right we can grow from February to almost Christmas outdoors depending on weather changes we don't have extreme winters um so that we're outdoors at a cafe in December while 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 Boston is and New York is in a state of emergency right now with their snow flurries or snowstorms. Yeah. yeah, here we are uh, close to Christmas and, and just chilling in L.A., man. I mean, we, we have some good, good things here that yes. the rest of the country doesn't, you know, hence what we a lot of people stay around in California for. Yeah. Um, but that being said, um, seeing this problem originate on the West Coast, but now affect the entire country. Um, nobody wants to see this happen and no so few people realize that it is embedded in America and we need to remember that these cartel groups and I get into this in Hidden War I talk about what we didn't know in the first book period when my partner was shot in 05 and all those times of doing missions with the Santa with Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office my brothers that took us under their wing you know kind of looked at us as equals to help develop a, a collateral team um, in the Silicon Valley and we were all kind of learning together at that point on how to get these guys safely how not to get hurt what equipment support we needed um, but as we were going through that process you know we were realizing that um, we were looking at the tainted cannabis issue and this stuff getting into the black market and these guys you know shooting anybody that comes across their grow including cops I didn't realize at the time these cartel groups that's just one of many things they do in America I mean they're producing the fentanyl you know the synthetic heroin now that's not done correctly and millions you know thousands are being killed um, they produce methamphetamine in you know, the winter months when they're not growing tainted cannabis and they're doing human trafficking, they're doing gun running. All of that is going on by the same organizations that do all of the, the trespass cannabis production in the whole country as well. Um, so we have a lot of embedded within our border problems besides just the cannabis issue. But it's definitely the poison cannabis issue that's hitting the environment the worst. Um, and, and even with and even with well, so much like legalization, finally, um, it is, it's, you know, especially in states like Colorado and California, the the drug cartel market weed, it's it's is is the is the demand kind of going down for it or is it still a thing? I mean, is it growing or is it going down? That's that's see now that's me talking normal like myself going. Is it pretty or not pretty? Right. So that, that's a really good question because when you break it down and um, in chapter ten in the new book in Hidden War, I go into that yeah. because everyone always hits me up. Well, what's your stance on re- on legalization and regulation? I mean, if we just regulate it, yeah. this should be this should go away, right? Wish that was the case. Um, because when the new book was published, we had two years of Prop 64 being in effect. And before Prop 64 went into effect... And, that's, and is that the legalization or is that the medical... Uh, that's actually recreational use recreational legalized. Use. And then all the, the, the medical laws changed as well, you know, since Prop 215 around Prop 64. I look like a stoner, but I'm not. So that's... The, <laughs> <laughs> no worries, no harm, no foul either way. It's all good, man. But what the interesting part was as... The lieutenant, you know, and team leader of this unit, 30% of my job was to educate, do outreach, present on the issue, talk about the environmental damages. And something I was really lucky to be able to do is with our legislative groups and all of our policy, you know, formers, if you will, for lack of a better word, before we regulated was get the message out as far as we could. And talk to our legislatures and work with the cannabis industry. Say, look, guys, if we're going to regulate, let's regulate right. You know, let's not make it easier for the cartel to do what they're doing. Let's somehow break their back, stop their market, 
put heavier fines on them, you know, if, if, if uh, they're going to continue to do, you know, trespass grow operations, even once we regulate. And sadly for me, and I really go into this heavily in, in that last chapter of the book of, cause people ask, well, has it helped? Right. And it hasn't. I mean, honestly, it hasn't. It could if it was done differently, I believe, but it has not helped because one thing to get that law passed, and I had completely presented and educated, you know, some of our policymakers to, to, to the opposite of what happened is they watered down the outdoor trespass grow cultivation crimes from felonies to misdemeanors and for juvenile offenders from misdemeanors to infractions. So cartel growers here illegally embedded, most of them are classified as deportable felons, which means they're on international watch lists for murder, narcotics trafficking. They already have criminal histories. They're not legitimate immigrants trying to live the American dream and trying to do something here, you know, that we welcome. These guys are hardened criminals and they're dangerous no matter what country they're in, right? So they're here now and they face misdemeanor charges for growing tainted weed that could kill people um, instead of a felony. Um, if they have juvenile you know, cartel growers with them and they do bring up younger growers to educate them, get them into the system. Um, cause it's, it's an arduous task they do out there. You know, they're out there for six, seven, eight months a year, hiding under the radar in the woods, having to irrigate, having to find water sources. It's not easy work. Um, so to get a vetted grower, that's really good from Mexico up here, there's a bit of a bit of a work involved for the organization to do that. But when those laws got watered down, when we regulated under prop 64, many agencies said, Sheriff's departments, um, drug task forces said, wait a minute, we're not going to go into the woods and risk a lot of our resources, have to put tactical teams together because these guys are so dangerous for a misdemeanor that our courts aren't even going to prosecute, that our DAs aren't going to get a sympathetic judge. They can't even get this thing into the system. So that is something that needed to change. What we needed to do was enhance those outdoor penalties, make them felonies, put stricter penalties on them. Um, and then, of course, reward the legitimate growing industry and the, the legitimate cannabis industry that's doing it right by making their process as trouble-free as long as they're complying with all the regulations environmentally, seed to sale, uh, you know, business professions, um, where they're using power, what their carbon footprint is, all those different things. Um, and it just didn't work that way because politics are politics and how that those decisions were made to get the law passed, I don't know. That's way beyond my scope or my interest. But what I'm doing now on the national front is just educating to show if we're going to regulate, do it right. Look at the lessons we've learned from Colorado, yeah. from Washington. We still have black market cannabis trade on every state and all this exported weed coming from Colorado and coming from Washington and come from California to fuel the black market in the rest of the country. So regulation hasn't worked in those states to stop the problem of the black market. And the cartels are thriving right now, um, unfortunately, since we've regulated in California. And the the thing that um, so the from the felony to the misdemeanor, part of me gets that because there's you know there's people that are growing their own on a on a, on a two, you know they're growing their own on an illegal level, but they're maybe they're doing that out of their greenhouses or they're they're doing it on the lo-fi, where um where it could be a situation where, it's it's a kind of a mom and pop thing. They want to go under the radar. They don't want to, they, they, they got their own thing and they're tired of filling out the forms and regulations. So those people, I just want to get a ticket. And then the cartels and who are ruining the environment, like how, how can we differentiate where somebody doesn't lose, you know, their home um, over this because the drug cartels have escalated it on such a level over here. It's, that that's where I get kind of you know because I have no idea about the law. So I'm, this is this is me asking you uh, yeah, it's, from. It's a really good question. Is it a good question? It's a really good uh, question. Can you say that again? Because I sometimes I feel like half my questions are really dumb. <laughs> Let's throw one out. It's a good question, Tony. Oh, thanks, man. So so here's the rub on that one. When you when you look at the mom and pop cannabis grower, maybe violating here or there, um, are they going to lose all those things if they're cited on a violation? Likely not. What we're with, dealing with, with the misdemeanor, with the misdemeanor. but with a felony, they, they could lose it. I remember, I remember right. about 15 years ago, if you had more than three plants in your garage, you can lose your house. Right, but and But what we're dealing with the way the new law was written is they're not affected negatively by this felony to misdemeanor washdown. It's only the outdoor trespass grower. Right. So right. if it's a mom and pop, they're growing on their own property or should be. Right. It's, it's apples and oranges. I, it, so it's, so that, yeah, that what's happened now is now those people are okay. But the drug cartels are also flying under the umbrella of 
we're mom and pop too. Is that the is that the situation? They actually are. They're yeah. integrating in with those small operations. But you know, when you look at trespass growers on public and private land that they're not supposed to be on, like mom and pop growers. Generally speaking, it has happened, but the general rule in our experience, you know, in cannabis enforcement as game wardens is you don't see a mom and pop small operation going into the national forest and starting to grow, you know, 90 plus percent of all those trespass growers that are on public or private land illegally are cartel growers. It's just what we've seen statistically. And I, I have, the, I mean, I saw stats the first six years of running the team and my teammates that I see and train with, you know, periodically and throughout the year are seeing the same thing now. And here we are, you know, two and three years after Prop 64 and the Met team is had one of their busiest years here in 2019 and just watching it being retired for about a year now since I left the team, it didn't slow down at all. And only because those trespass growers haven't slowed down because there's little enforcement pressure on them, except from teams like ours, and there aren't very many teams like that. Um, enforcement teams with state, local, and you know um, federal agencies now, or the state and local especially, are focusing on having to inspect mom and pop organizations, dispensaries, indoor gross, you know, grow operations. For all the compliance issues they're now they're now looking at, you know, under new regulations, it's just put less attention on the outdoor trespass problem, which is the biggest environmental damager, is the biggest threat to public safety because our hikers, our hunters, our equestrians, our outdoor enthusiasts just taking a hike on a trail can run across this. And the cartel growers know they like, we love regulation in California. This has been great. There's no, hardly any pressure on us, you know, and we can we can rope in and, you know, muddy the waters with the mom and pops and work in the valleys under a quasi license for a legitimate grow site. And we can still go out and do the outdoor thing. And, you know, just by the sheer, uh, you know, playing the odds of the numbers, maybe not get caught. So we haven't slowed it down and we need to do something to really put more pressure on the outdoor trespass growers. The one positive, Tony, that we can talk about is some of this Prop 64 taxation and regulation money has come back to our agency. So we have been able to, you know, compensate our officers for all the long hours. They're out working these, you know, trespass grow sites because we're working them all the time. Um, getting more officers dedicated in positions to doing both the trespass grow as well as the private land mom and pops and making sure everyone's doing it right. So the money is coming in and that is helping the agency but there is a cost to that in that we still have not solved the problem we still haven't limited the incentive or stopped the incentive for the cartels to do what they're doing in our forests nationally and that's what i'm trying to educate with because it had been 10 years if you look at both books you look at war in the woods published in 2010 and you look at hidden war that just came out in april of 2019 and they were exactly 10 years apart in publication timing and writing and you look at the trends of the, the how much the population has grown in the in the U.S. right, and you look at how many more people are out in our wildlands and our waterways and our forests and enjoying them or doing you know nasty things in them, whatever, destroying the wildlife. Um, and you look at the number of game wardens and the number of thin green line officers from federal agencies to us as game wardens, and they've barely gone up, maybe twelve hundred officers in a decade. But what's the population done? in all of our outdoor regions, it is skyrocketed by millions and millions of people. Um, so the impacts to our outdoors right now has never been more threatened on every level. And what we do is what we call the thin green line of law enforcement officers that are dedicated to conservation, wildlife protection, game wardens being the thin green line. That line is getting thinner and thinner and thinner. And the challenges we're facing with issues like cannabis now that game wardens 15 years ago didn't have to deal with. No one would have thought we'd be dealing in this realm. But when, I, when that second book came out, even though we've been telling the message since that first shooting in 2005, we've done three years of National Geographic TV. Our Wild Justice was the first game-worn reality show that our, our team was featured on. And our agency and our, a lot of the guys on the team, myself included, did a lot of outreach on that television show and documentaries. And I'm on the East Coast now pushing the new book and doing signings and doing presentations and education and outreach. And people are getting the book and going, I had no idea this was going on in America. I am blown away, Lieutenant. This is crazy. We need to do something about this. This is national. And I said, that's why we named the second book Hidden War 10 years later. And people don't know. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that gets a little bit of a news blurb. Like you said it yourself. How much did you really know before you saw the book, reached out, and you and I started to converse about having this good conversation today. And um, 
So, oh, is it good so far? I feel like it's good. I'm gonna put it in the good category, yeah, man. I, I, Let's keep feeling okay about it. I'm feeling really good. Yeah. Now, I want to I want to talk about the mom and pop because I think mom and pop are getting a bad rap. It might be son and daughter. No, why, why are we calling it? I don't know why we call it mom and pop. Wait, we, we need. I, just sound, I do too. I, I did. I'm the one that. Yeah. But it's but we're it's about the smaller private land entity. Yeah, no, yeah, 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 we're not we're not we're not trying to we're not slandering mom and pops. We love mom and pop yeah, all over yeah, the country. No, mom and pops make kids and then they grow marijuana. That's in they do it in small doses. So we have two definitions of them. Let's just keep it at that very defined, succinct, and uh, totally like uh, prejudice against mom and pops. When I see someone with a stroller, I'm like, oh, illegal grow. <laughs> yeah, now we're getting re- we're really fitting that stereotype now, man. <laughs> Heavy-handed big brother cop, anti-cannabis. Here we go. Yeah, Not yeah, the yeah. case, everybody. Yeah, Don't yeah. worry. Go ahead, kick a kid in a stroller because you know those parents are illegal. No, all right. I. What is it that uh, that what is it that uh, that you said? You know what? I need to write a book about this. Like, were you writing before? What was what what was the experience of going? Okay, we need to do a book, and then once you're writing a book, going. Oh my God, I thought this was easy. <laughs> you know, it was, that's a, a really good question from the Aren't they all from me? <laughs> yeah. This one, this is a good one, man, because here we are talking, I mean, I'm talking to basically, here you are, you know, doing a show on authors, yeah. and I never intended to be an author. Yeah. I never planned to write a book. I mean, if, I mean, when I was writing in college, one of my biggest challenges is, I went to San Jose State University. Yeah. Um, for KSJS. Un- KSJS, man, my yeah. biggest challenge was getting through those writing classes, and they kicked my butt. You know, I, I had this block. I was intimidated by it. I became, I'm going to say, I became a competent writer by design and survival to get grades in, in, in college. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't anything I thought that I would morph into being a quasi career. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to be a game warden. I wanted to go out, boots on the ground, stop poachers. Um, you, you weren't writing poetry in your notebooks as you were doing your uh, daily. Uh, <laughs> exactly. There wasn't poetry writing going on I wasn't you know moved by it um but but after that shooting in 2005 um people got wind of that story and what I had done is I I I put together um kind of a a debrief of it in in story form of that incident um and one of the other officers um we won't give his name away for safety but Bulldog was code name the code name's Bulldog. 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 <laughs> I want a code name Bulldog. I get Pink Death when I'm a stripper. Jesus. Yeah. yeah so you, you, know, you got two. Yeah. We got we got Bulldog and Pink Death. You can right. use them both. All right. Cool. Yeah. You're good. Uh, I'm just trying to find a stripper gig. No one will have me right now. But go ahead. <laughs> but as we're as we're kind of going through the incident, and, you know, we're on administrative leave after our first officer-involved shooting, and you know, we got my partner in the hospital, and he's going through surgeries, and we, you know, we're concerned for his safety. Is he going to be okay? Is it going to be life? Th- you know, is he going to make it one? Um, and beyond that, if he does recover, is he ever going to be able to work again? I mean, all this weighed heavy on my heart, my partner's hearts. We were really concerned. You know, like. This, this may have ended a lot of beautiful things and a lot of beautiful things for all of us, not just my partner that got hurt. Um, but I started writing notes and I wanted to get down fresh in my mind what had happened because I had never seen almost like, like, like a mili- paramilitary you know, threat that we went up against in the foothills that I've been protecting wildlife in you know, most of my career and processing that. And I wanted to make sure everything was fresh, play by play, so I could articulate to my bosses as we were doing the, you know, shooting investigation, and that morphed into a very long short story. Um, that- so, I mean, essentially, you do have to put the facts together and put them in story form for your boss. What is it where you go? You know what? Let me let me dive into this on a craft level and make it a short story. What what, what was it in your mind that went? There's something here. Just as crazy as the day was, you know, as intense as it was, what the, what we were experiencing, you know, visually sensory, you know, when you have guns trained on you and you got guys crawling through the brush and, you know, wildlife are making weird sounds and the area doesn't seem like it should being familiar with how outdoor areas are. Cause we work in the woods all the time. Um, it just kind of naturally happened. And my chief, Nancy Foley, who was a big supporter of the work we were doing, you know, she took a lot of hits of what are, what are game wardens doing on some drug case, you know, when, and how they get this officer shot, what happened there. So 
it shook up the governor's office. It shook up our director that we were, you know, kind of outside of our sandbox, if you will. You know, we weren't staying in our box. And Nancy supported us. She stuck behind us. She believed in me and the guys and the tactics we had developed, um, the legitimacy game wardens were becoming, you know, in that other area of environmental crime. But um, she published that story for the entire agency to have, and I presented on it to every officer in the state over a two-year period. Um, during, you know, we have half the state together for training one year and the other half for annual training the other. She wanted everybody to hear this story. So, so this is beyond usually your usual writing. Oh, yeah. uh, so now you're, now this is like you're in a published scenario right. and an authority and speaking about the, the boat. What was that feeling like? You know, just, I'm, I'm trying to get into your writer head. <laughs> what, yeah, yeah. what was that feeling like? Where you're just sitting there going, wait a second, I, I got a story that means a lot to me and it's connecting with other people. Yeah, it was it was intense. Um, and then having to talk about it in front of my peers to every single game warden from yeah. our chief at badge number one, all our you know middle level administration down to all my fellow game wardens boots on the ground. Um, it was really emotional. It was hard. Yeah. Um, for and, and every year that I would tell that story or we would pass out this, you know, this chapter paper that became a little bound, you know, one chapter journal, if you will. Um, it was really emotional, man. It, it, it was hard to uh, hard to relive. You know, there was always concern for my partner and, and how he was affected. And, you know, he took were, big- were you wor- were you worried that you because uh, because he's I mean, he's recovering. You know, when when you're doing when you're writing this, I'm assuming, were you worried that you uh, that you're just like hoping the narrative is like giving him justice kind of thing or? or oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because, you know, he, he was he was just a just an amazing warrior that day. You know, he was looking to not just protect himself, and he didn't see himself as a victim when he got shot. He still wanted to fight back. He still wanted to be part of the team. He still wanted to be back in the fight. And that's the warrior mentality that that true sheepdogs, we call them, you know, or true warriors that we're we're, we're a group of, whether it be military, special operations, or law enforcement first responder. Um, He just wanted to be back out there, you know, and he was not going to be a victim. And that's why he came back in a year. You know, that's why he and I, um, the story that in that, that first paper that became, you know, the building blocks of chapter two and War in the Woods absolutely credits him with everything he is, what the team is, what his contributions are and honors him, you know, and it has to because he made the ultimate sacrifice that day. I mean, he, he got the Purple Heart from our agency as an award um, recognition as, as well as, you know, other amazing awards for staying in the fight to still protect his partners, myself and the sheriff's deputies and bulldog, you know, in addition to trying to keep himself alive. So yeah, no, I, I feel very comfortable with, um, honoring him. And then at the same time, getting out the facts. So this does not get forgotten that I don't want people to ever think that game wardens just check people's fishing licenses on shorelines that just, you know, wear the hat and, you know, have kind of the smoky, the bear, you know, kind of, um, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of stereotype that put out your campfire early people, right? you know, and I mean, Tony, I've spent my whole career trying to explain what a game warden really does. And until this incident happened, until shows like Wild Justice, you know, our game warden reality show on Nat Geo, when people saw what we really do, they went, oh my gosh, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. This is a whole different game warden game. We didn't know game wardens did this stuff, you know, and that's just validating the thin green line. And that's what I've been about. I've always, when I started my career, um, I never, like we just said, I never thought I'd be writing about it, but I realized the pin is ultimately mightier than the sword. And we create history with an accurate account of yeah. what we've lived. And anything I can do now in retirement is I'm, I consider myself not retired. I'm just in phase two. And yeah, because you look really good for a retired fella. Thanks. Yeah, yeah we, go, we go pretty early, you know, if we start young. And I, I started young, so I was maxed out at 30 years, you know, and, uh, you know, couldn't really, couldn't really go any farther. And- so, so with the reality show, because I know you um, segue to that, because reality TV is a lot of it's kind of really kind of scripted, really produced. They got to get they, they got to get the shot list down. I, I think people don't realize they're not sitting there for hours waiting for the moment. It's like, okay, we do this, we do this. Right. What was it like when you're on a? Pro- I don't know if that was the first production you were on, but but what what was it like being on a production where it's almost there? You have to show the story, but at the same time, there's an element of 
the the people behind the camera are still sitting there with uh, with clip clapboards and sound speed, all that. Well, for that was the first big production I'd been on. Yeah. Um, but what we did differently than a typical reality show, which you're right, is produced, it is scripted. Yeah. Um, they become kind of the you know the staple now. Yeah. We had a rule going in since our agency wasn't getting paid. Um, and National Geographic Channel obviously was going to make a lot of money off this show. It became a number one hit show for the three seasons we ran. They wanted to run three more seasons off the cuff, but we just, unless we had more content control and can put more conservation kind of PR stories in, we decided not to continue. Um, Wait, were you okay with the final cuts on uh, some, of, or were some of those episodes where you're like, oh man, they they jacked us in the, in the edit? No, they, you know, most of them were done really well. I mean, there were some we had issues with, but I'd say 90 plus percent of them were done well because yeah. what we didn't allow is we didn't allow we would not be produced to a point where we'd ever fabricate a case, right. we'd never go reenact a case. Right. Um, they would have to they would have to be with us. So we we said, look, guys, if you want to get that spotlighter at night, you might have to sit five nights straight. I said, if you want to catch a cartel grower, you know, you're going to have to, you guys are going to have to hike in 100 degree heat. You're going to have to cam out your equipment. You're going to have to train with us tactically for two days. And they had some really good camera crews. In, in credit to them, they had some guys that had come from Deadliest Catch, Ice Road Truckers, because that was the group. So they, they cut their teeth in extreme weather on the Bering Sea, right? And those type of environments. And then they come to do Wild Justice and they realize... And, and it was kind of an honor from from Hollywood cameramen, Hollywood field producers, from down here in L.A. to go, you know, we've worked all over the world on reality shows, and we've never felt more relevant on a project that matters. Yeah. And we hate these environmental criminals. We hate these cartel growers. Yeah. We're embedded. We want to not only tell the story, you know, I think I want to be a game warden, you know, or some of them actually went through hunter education and became certified hunters while we were in production. I mean, and they were out there putting the cameras down on cartel growth sites when we filmed what we needed to film, helping us clean up, helping us eradicate plants. They hated the environmental impacts. So these are union guys who never put their cameras down and work on anything but pulling cables and making sure they got the shot. Wow, that's big. We got some converts, Tony. Go figure, right? So that was that was really cool, man. And um, one of the things that I mean, you know, it, it's it's not all perfect when you work yeah. with any reality show. But oh God, on anything, it's not perfect. I mean, that's why I love books because at least we have our name behind them. When, when you know, it's a it's a team of one, even though it's usually not a team of one. But right. your name is on it, and you have hopefully final say. Exactly. When you're in a production like that, you don't have final say. There's people. You're, 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 there's a responsibility to about 300 people. So that's why, that's why I love having, you know, with, with a reality show, you can always, re- even if you had a bad cut on like, you know, episode six, you'd be like, refer to the book. That's, right. that's going to be where the truth is. Yeah. yeah. And the, the cool thing was, I mean, we, we still in that show had to do, you know, we had to post produce some things like if we had to redo a briefing yeah. to make it clear to the audience what we were doing yeah. rather than just jumping in and doing a bust, then we would do that. Yeah. But that was fine. I had no problem with that as long as we weren't ever fabricating a takedown or a bust and you know when you when you look at things like that um how it happened how it went down we were really really careful because we realized we're giving you guys an opportunity to tell a really good story there's going to be some you know profit potential in it for the production companies for nat geo but we're also going to be lucky to get our message out and show the world what game worms really do and make the thin green line a little more obvious and and what we do out there and that show validated game wardens it kind of started all of these game warden reality series there's about six to ten of them in the country now and they're all hit shows on history and discovery and animal planet and people love seeing them so you know, we got to start that in California, and it was kind of kind of cool that we did. Um, and game wardens are rad now. It's, uh, is there is there an uptake in like people wanting to be game wardens yeah, just yeah, from this? Yeah. It's it's a hip thing to be, man. Yeah. I mean, we went from hardly any applicants in the millennial generation that didn't have outdoor backgrounds that thought, uh, yeah, it doesn't pay real well, and I don't hunt or fish. I don't really like guns. I'm not really comfortable around guns. I'm gonna have to deal with guys with guns all the time. Right. So it went from really difficult to recruit and find the right people for the job to unlimited you know so many applicants for just four positions like back when i got hired in the early 90s it it went crazy we had you know special forces veterans coming back from the war on terror in iraq and afghanistan and retiring out of seal teams and the army and marine corps and grown up hunting and fishing they were outdoor guys from all over the country going man i can't believe what california's doing they got this like 
tactical unit and they're, I mean, there's cartels destroying the environment and I want to go get involved in that. Or I just love, you know, doing the spotlight, whatever. Um, so we got great, you know, tier one military veterans with great character and and experience coming to be game wardens second career as a result of that show. And we've, that has continued with the outreach and not only the show, but our books, you know, war in the woods and hidden war. Um, I am so flattered and so blessed to have so many emails from all over the country and Instagram messages and, you know, direct messages on, man, I can't believe it. I read this story. I heard you on Joe Rogan or we watched you on Wild Justice and watch what these you guys are doing as game wardens. And I want a career change. I'm going this direction in college and I'm going to make a wrong turn. I'm not feeling passionate about it. And how can I help? And just, you know, being able to give people all the building blocks that I didn't know coming in cold when I started back in college, um, that feels really good. And that's that's why, you know, not planning to write a book or magazine or whatever, that's where it matters is paying it forward and giving somebody a reference material that save them from making the mistakes I made or hopefully inspire them to share in the blessings and the joy of what I was able to do for 28 years on the ground. And I went trade it for the world. And at the same time, you crafted a solid book. I mean, it's, you just you just don't come out with, uh, you can have all the information, you can have all the background, but there's also telling a story. So what was it that where, you've, where you had to get in and tell the story and really get us emotionally? Because you have to get your audience emotionally involved. Essentially, even though it's nonfiction, it's about you. You are the hero, the protagonist that we have to go through to re- as we read the book. I think I've always been really visual in how I remember incidents, you know, and I remember and and very emotional in that same, you know, if I'm visualizing something, I'm also feeling what I felt at the time and being a big, yeah, big studier of good film, you know, good images, good production, um, whether it's a movie in my genre, first responder, military, or a good drama or relationship story. Um, when I can feel that in authors I've, that I'm reading, right. And I feel like I'm watching an amazing movie, you know, by an amazing producer that just gets it with light, with visuals, with sound, with dialogue and story. Um, I didn't realize that that was all impacting and influencing what I was putting on paper with even that first story. Because I just come out of a gunfight. My partner almost died. And we were in, you know, an assault rifle battle, you know, looking down at Silicon Valley. And even though that was my working environment, the surreality of thinking about that incident a day later or 10 days later, there was an intensity to that. You know, I couldn't sleep. I was wound up. I couldn't stay busy enough. You know, there was, there was a, there was just incredible anxiety and discomfort over what did we just experience? Where do we go next? Well, you know, every, we didn't know what the next day was going to be. If my partner hadn't made it out of surgery or it had ended his career, I don't know that we would have stayed involved in cannabis enforcement against the cartels. And all those things were going on, so I'm writing some intense ideas, and I'm, I'm living it minute by minute, and, you know, what it felt like to be out there, um, what the sounds were like with the wildlife, you know, what the water sounded like, how it smelled, what didn't look right, what didn't feel right. Um, and you're getting all this, I teach writing as well, so right. you're, you're tagging all the senses that I tell, you know, students, I'm like, get into the, get into it, and this brings the reader into it. Yeah. To, um, so I'm, you know, usually people don't know how to go straight to that, and you you did a good job of it. I, you know, I I don't know how many how many drafts you had to go through because it's it's not an easy game. This, you know, yeah, you could be a game warden, but an author, whoa. No. <laughs> well, you, you, you yeah, and you haven't said good question for about fifteen minutes, which is kind of freaking me out. I'm totally nervous over here. Okay, so not a question, but that's a good point, Tony. <laughs> I like I like the point. <laughs> Because you, you just hit it on the head. A minute ago, what you, what you said that struck me was you said you're kind of a team of one, at least until you get to your editors and depending on what publishing deal and how big the team is, um, you're kind of on an island out there, you know, and I like new challenges. I like getting out of my comfort zone. And when you, I've been a law enforcement officer at that point, 12, 13, 14 years, about halfway through my career, you know, had a very, a successful career, a challenging career, been on, on the front line of new, you know, progressive programs paving the way for the ultimate progressive program, which was this MET team, you know, we formed in 2013. But at the time when War in the Woods became an opportunity to write a book at the suggestion and encouragement of a lot of other people to, well, there's other stories that are relevant besides a shootout. You game wardens are doing some crazy stuff on environmental crime that involves cartels and a national impact. And this gets beyond just poaching a deer. 
or taking too many fish, right? Um, and then when the book deal came in, and I had an advance, right. and I had a deadline, yes. and I had basically a chapter that the sample chapter for the proposal was what was chapter two of you know War in the Woods. It was the yeah. shootout. Um, everything else was outlined, and now I got to produce. Yeah. And so I'm still a game warden. I'm still running crazy in Silicon Valley, and I'm through the winter of that would have been 2009, you know, trying to make the deadlines and not have writer's block and still come in with all that, you know, because chapter two was written at a time of crisis. It was perfectly written at a time of emotional craziness because it just, the, the gunfight had happened a day before and we're writing. Now I'm going back and I'm remembering a year and a half before that on our first grow that we found that led into my exposure to it, which is the first chapter of War in the Woods. And articulating that same energy and that same you know intensity as i'm going through and remembering all that and then all the missions that made the book and where we went at the end um it was it was challenging it was intimidating and it was freaked out and of course if it had sucked i would have to give back my advance we'd have no book if it would have sucked it would have been uh and they published it it would have been bad for game wardens you're kind of lucky yeah horrible well it's 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 one of those things where it's not my story it's our story, you know, and even though I'm writing it from my perspective and, you know, um, they talk about, you know, this is what John did. This is what, you know, this is what we built. This is, this is a we story. And I can't say that. That's not the French. That's, that's the us. Exactly. That's the us instead of the we. I like that. Yeah. That was the worst joke ever. I'm sorry. For our French listeners that are strictly, yeah, you know, just in case (laughs) that we get, we get it right. Right, right. Um, But no, that was one of the things is um, honoring my brothers making that sacrifice every day, whether I was alongside them on missions or not, or whether I'm here in phase two, while they're still out risking their lives every day as we speak, um, is telling their story accurately, honoring them to the level they need to be honored, and educating the public to the sacrifices that game wardens make everywhere, not just in our agency, not just on Met, but game wardens everywhere make, you know, to be part of that thin green line. And that that's a burden. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, you know, weight on making sure we do that right. And War in the Woods was was a long process. And fortunately, you mentioned, you know, how many rewrites. We didn't have many rewrites. In fact, we didn't have any rewrites. Um, you didn't have any rewrites? No. You did not have any rewrites? I only, we had... You're off the show. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Okay, I want to take a writing class from you because that rocks. Wow. Well, it's, it, I, I, think the, I, I think the advantage was I was writing nonfiction. It was coming from my perception, you know, if, if, I, if I was a fictional author, it would be so tough, you know, so much tougher in that realm. But, um, but with Lions Press, my editors back east, um, they really let the content stay what it was. I mean, there was certainly some polish on, on a little bit of structure, but it was, I mean, we edited it in a long winter weekend remotely, and I was really, really um, grateful and thankful that the edit didn't involve all that much, and that's what War in the Woods became. With Hidden War, um, no rewrites per se, but but we edited, we had to trim it down. Yeah. Because what I did is, I did what I always do. I overwrote, I overdescribed, I went into backstories with characterization, yeah, yeah. which which I like, and and again that comes more from some of the some of the screenplay work I've done and worked with different producers on things right. of writing it more from you know a more visual a more visual idea, a more visual perception, you know, looking at it as if you were looking at this on the screen, articulate it that way, right? Um, even in a nonfiction realm. And that's the difference between War in the Woods and Hidden War. They both, the intensity's there, the stories are the, the best of the best for that time period. Um, but Hidden War has a different tone. And Hidden War actually is more direct, more in your face. It breaks it down even quicker because I overwrote that. I mean, out of a uh, there's there's probably eighty ninety thousand words that were submitted, and we're, we're, that thing's trimmed down to, you know, sixty ish, seventy ish, um, just because we had to keep it at a certain size. And I think you have to. I think overwriting is important because you do have to know the nuances. And then, okay, now we got to get five pages into a sentence. How do we get that? Yeah. You you've been screenwriting. Uh, when when did you when did you start working on screenplays? Yeah, it was just um, I was working with a, an independent film producer with uh, with War in the Woods. It was optioned for for, for several years. Um, are we gonna see a Are we gonna see a film? Please, you just might. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. I won't give it away. We're not. I'm not giving it away too much. But I know. I know. You can't say too much. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. but the look in your eye was just. Yeah. It said a lot. Yeah. There could there, there could be something in the film or limited series or series yeah. realm coming up. Yeah. Uh, put potential there. Yeah. Um, but the, the congratulations. Greatest. That's so hard to get yeah. something from development to anything. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's 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 a long. It's a, a challenging long process yeah. and finding the right fit and yeah. you know the, the the entities to work with on that. But we're we're um we're we're working with some good people right now on that. Now, have you worked with producers that are worse than the cartel? Um, I'm gonna think about that. I, I have worked with some. And name them. <laughs> I can't name any, but I've worked with some yeah. that I question. Yeah. Uh, I, I question the motivation. Let's just yeah. put it that way. You know. You know. But nothing. Nothing that bad. No. No. no nothing. But it's there. There's. There's. Sometimes there's slime, and then sometimes there's some really good people out there. It's. It's so intriguing. This whole. Who's who's in it for what? You know, who's in it yeah. for the love and who's in it for bottom dollar, and that's it. I've been really lucky that a lot of the, um, like with Wild Justice, for instance, when we were doing three seasons, we had, you know, so many LA-based producers that really got the message. Yeah. In addition to making a show and you know making that A story and you know getting what they needed for ratings, they really they really got the story. They really got the message and they 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 identified with us, and that was cool. And then in other realms, because I come from you know that law enforcement, military kind of special operations background in that genre, um, I've worked with a lot of producers that are ex operators or have service backgrounds, and they're amazing producers to tell documentary stories or to do things like um, you know. Um, promote our message the right way because they're patriots and they're environmentalists and they're conservationists so um those producers you know guys like rick stewart that did our, our first couple documentaries in on both sides of wild justice right. the patriot profile series um amazing amazing man amazing job um 100 trustworthy would never put anything out there for sensational gotcha moment versus uh in, in anything like that so um, it, it's been a good journey, man. I've been, I've had more positives and negatives, you know, experiences with producers, um, and editors on both books have been really cool to work with and completely different, but hidden war ended up becoming a really tighter story than I wrote, but it gave my editors all this cool background about the guys I was writing about and the stories and the canines and they go, okay, well, we don't need all of this, but man, we really like this. We really identified it. It became a, you know, created some good personal relationships, which ultimately, when you start making friends with editors that really buy into the, your story and believe in you, um, it's just great for the project. You know, it's just great for the project. So, this is the most important question in the interview. Oh, no. It's the end. Oh, no. The most important. The, the most. Uh, do you smoke pot? I don't. Yeah, I just had nothing against it. No. You know, have you, have you tried and then, or did you, have you never? You know, I, I never have. Really? This is the crazy part, and I have so many cannabis friends, family yeah. members, and it's one of those things. And you know, um, I've just never, never done it. Never had the need or desire to. Um, nothing against it at all. Yeah. Um, it's just one of those things that you know I've never been exposed to or never felt I needed to. So, um, haven't done it. Yeah, I didn't try it. I didn't really try it until I was in my forties and moved to Los Angeles, and and then. And I, you know, I was like, oh, this is fun, you know, and after, and then I did it for about a year and then not every day, but whenever I did it occasionally, the next day I was so depressed yeah. and I would walk around with this heavy cloud and I had to go, oh man, okay, last night I smoked pot. This is just major depression. I just realized it wasn't for me. So that's, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things that some people, you know, great reactions responses i hear great stuff and i hear some people say the same thing you know it's just they're they're turned off by when they try it and um i've just stayed you know completely neutral on the issue and i've never never tried it in high school it just never came across what i was doing i was more i was kind of i call it you know kind of high on life and the outdoors and fresh air i was in the woods all the time i wasn't going to parties i was either studying in school or i was hiking hunting fishing doing the mountain stuff you know and so. that's why you look so good as a retired fella <laughs> I, tr I just try to try to be out there in fresh air man you know fresh air i love i mean we love the city areas here in la we got so much good stuff going you know montana's great silicon valley's great but if i can't get if i can't get off the grid you know and, and, and get some open space and some breathing room I'm, i go a little crazy that's that's my anxiety and i don't i don't think cannabis would help me with that yeah yeah i yeah, don't yeah. think so no i wouldn't be able to do it in the yeah. woods either i could barely do it in an apartment yeah. <laughs> john norris thank you so so much for being on the show. Tony, so good to be here, man. Hey, by the way, um, 
Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Love your website. Oh, thank you. Like what you're seeing. And um, in seeing your website, as we've gotten to talk to do this show, yeah. I've got to know some other authors and look at some of the cool work they're doing. So oh, uh, cool. keep up the good work, man. Oh, I yeah, it. never never done a quote unquote author specific. You know, it's yeah. a good show. I really appreciate it. Be on. John Norris on Drinks with Tony. Check out his book, Hidden War. And remember to buy your pot from mom and pop. <laughs> if you learned one thing today, you buy your, you buy your marijuana from your parents. Because mom and pop are going to do it right. And they're not going to mess up the environment. We hope they don't. Mom, pop, don't mess up the environment. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. Stay tuned to coming again next week and the week after. And the week after that, more authors, more conversations, more fun, more funky intros. Have a great weekend.